welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And with us today from Stuff to Blow Your Mind, we have Julie Douglas. Howdy. So thanks so much for being here, Julie, to help us kick off our four-part Women in STEM Science, Technology, Engineering, and Math series. That's right. You're the all-important S in STEM. That's right. I represent S. I feel like I'm on Sesame Street. That's right. <laughs> I'm S. Well, it's appropriate because you're actually holding a giant S right now. Yeah. Notice. I, I told you you didn't have to do that. I know, but I just thought it would really ramp us up, you know? And no pressure, Julie, but you do represent all of science mm-hmm. and more importantly, all of women and girls in science. Mm-hmm. So I hope you are ready for that. I am uh, so ready to talk really eloquently about this subject and just to change everybody's minds and just to revisit your childhood memories. Perhaps everybody gets fetal at some point <laughs> and then you emerge in a field of lilies with, with, with an absolute new concept of life in the universe. I've got goosebumps. I do too. Is that on your resume? That's pretty impressive. That in pyrotechnics. <laughs> well, Julie, you host the science podcast, Stuff to Blow Your Mind. So could you, just to kick things off, tell us a little bit about what piques your interest with science. Have you always been kind of a science nerd or... Or what? Um, I think that I've just always been curious about everything. I mean, I remember being 13 years old and um, buying a book on hypnosis and trying to hypnotize myself. Like, that was what I was doing on a Saturday night. Um, so that, I think, just naturally led to me um, really getting more into some of the aspects of what Richard Dawkins calls the magic of reality. This idea that our reality can be far more interesting and weird than, you know, the, these fictionalized accounts that we turn to. And so when I think about science, I think about that a lot because I think, wow, I mean, there are aspects of the our physical world that just completely change our perspective. Like, for instance, um, there's something called green leaf volatiles in a tobacco plant. So if you actually cut that leaf, it releases these GLVs, which is basically a scream for help. It will tell the predators of whatever just munched on it, like a caterpillar, and say, hey, come and get this caterpillar off me. So it's just weird and wacky the, the way that our physical world works. Um, and when I think about science and, and women, I think naturally about my daughter. She's four years old. In about a year ago, the onslaught of total pink pony magic, you know, castle, just that whole onslaught of the generalization just came rushing at us. So here's this daughter that I have that is so interested in every aspect of life, but now I see things getting genderized. Instead of being interested in bugs and, um, you know, all the cool aspects of that, uh, the insect world, she's starting to veer more toward what I would say is magical reality instead of the magic of reality. Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting that you bring up uh, that difference in what might have been her just natural interest and then the onslaught of all of the, the pink princessy products and yeah. programming and all that stuff. Because I feel like that divide between the nature and the nurture mm-hmm really is a bulk of this conversation surrounding women and girls and science and, unfortunately, the lack thereof, um, where there's not as many girls pursuing science. And so the whole question a lot of times is, well, are we just not as good at science or are we just not being informed about science and encouraged towards science enough? 
Well, um, working on the podcast on Stuff to Blow Your Mind with Robert Lamb, he's the co-host, we have, we just keep sort of getting more at this sort of invisible reality, all these sort of underpinnings of of how we define our world and we move around in it. And uh, one of the things that I was thinking about is something called enclosed cognition. Now, this is a subset of something called embodied cognition. So if I'm holding a, um, say, a warm cup of coffee and I'm talking to you guys, there are studies that say that I feel more warmly toward you. It sounds kind of ridiculous and reductionist, but sometimes we simple humans operate on that level. And so enclosed cognition is this idea that what you wear can actually change your behavior. And they did a bunch of studies I won't go into about clipboards, which obviously make everybody feel more important, and doctor's coats. And they just found amazing results that that people could actually not just change their behavior, but the way that their brain works. Um, They become more attentive if they're wearing a doctor's coat. Uh, so I think about those things, and then I think about, um, as you said, that the ways that nature and nurture work, and there's a lot of evidence out there, or mounting evidence, or the idea that um, it's really our society and our culture that's informing the way that we behave in it, and our interests that sort of bloom as a result. Well, it's interesting uh, that you mentioned like lab coats making you feel more attentive. It, sound, it seems to me like that's almost taking our stereotypes of what a doctor is or should be and applying that sort of in our brains internally, making us feel a certain way. And all of that to say, some people have some interesting stereotypes and ideas about who should be involved where in the sciences. Who should be wearing that lab coat, who should be Who should be wearing that lab coat. Back in January 2005, uh, then-Harvard president Larry Summers set off on a public apology tour after the Boston Globe reported on his remarks given at a small seminar that January, in which he said that the women in science gender gap may be partially explained by issues of intrinsic aptitude. And I'm thinking, does he actually believe that, or is he just harping on some old stereotypes about women in science? What's going on? Yeah, and during this public apology tour, he explained himself more fully saying that, well, actually, there are all these socialization issues and maybe women not being afforded enough time because uh, usually things like the child care tends to fall on our shoulders. But he couldn't erase the fact that he did say that maybe our brains aren't as cut out for science. Yeah, I mean, he said intrinsic mm-hmm. aptitude. I mean, he's saying from with the, the, the depths within women, they just, I mean, he's not saying this, but I'm taking it that as saying, like, you know, it's just, they just don't have it in them. They can't wear that lab coat. Even if it makes them perform, you know, better on these Stroop attention tests. Yeah. Um, so you know, it was unfortunate that he said it, but I think uh, what's interesting about it is it just set off this ripple effect, this realization that in academia, it, this is some pervasive, um, you know, bias toward women um, and sexism. Yeah. The the thing is, he was saying what people were unfortunately thinking mm-hmm. that maybe this this was the case. And in a way, it's good because even, you know, years later, we're still talking about it. It definitely sparked a huge discussion. And soon thereafter, in April 2005, there was a highly publicized debate between Steven Pinker and Elizabeth Spelke about whether or not, you know, Summers was right, essentially, whether it's more a fact of nature or nurture. And Pinker, I mean, presented this entire slideshow just hammering away at it being nature, that no, girls are simply not as inclined to 
want to explore scientifically. It's not there in our brains. But, I mean, as you were saying, Julie, I mean, you watched your daughter transform before mm-hmm. your eyes from being all into bugs and insects and the outdoors to... You know, maybe liking My Little Pony a little bit more. Yeah, well, and you know, she does, she does veer toward that. Now, um, inherently, like, she does have still, she still has the interest. And I watched just this morning, she was using these things called magnetiles, which I really want for myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and building this incredible structure. And it ended up being a castle for a witch. I don't know if that's an improvement or not over a princess, but, um, you know, you, I still see these skills and this interest. But again, there's this whole other pink, avalanche that is coming at us and will come at her for the rest of her life. It is very damaging whether it's, you know, Summer, who carries a lot of weight, and Pinker, saying that this is something that is inherent in nature. And what I really love about this debate between Spelke and Pinker is that, they're first of all, they're they're great friends, but they differ on this one thing, obviously. Um, it is such a rousing debate. And Spelke cleans up. And, you know, she she looks at 20 years of her research. She's a cognitive psychologist. She deals mainly with infants and children. She comes through. Can you imagine going through 20 years of research? And she she looks at all of the problem uh, solving skills and number skills that children possess. And she says there is no difference. She says it is a null hypothesis. Now, that is not, you know, just. That's the debate, and it was over. It's actually, if you want to look at it online, it is a very long discussion between the two, but it is fascinating. And it's just, uh, it's a bit sad to me that we actually even have to have this debate in the first place with slideshows to say that this is not a, a nurture thing, excuse me, to say that this is not a nature thing. Well, and I think it's almost like we want to believe that it has to be nature. I mean, the year after that, in 2006, there was the bestseller, The Female Brain, by Luann Brizendine, who got so much attention, but not so favorably from people who actually read the book and were scientifically inclined and said, wait, 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 uh, you're saying that the female brain is cut out like this and you're ignoring a lot of actual scientific truths to make this argument that, I mean, the only thing that comes to mind is just, is that we have lady brains, you know? Uh, Yeah, it's true. It's like she, she, uh, I've read the book actually, and um, she makes a very persuasive argument with with what passes as fact or facts and, um, and just sort of these overwhelming uh, generalities about the brain to sort of say, oh, this is why we get the sad sometimes. We get those hormones and every month and you never know. You're just going to be nuts. Uh, you know, so it's sort of reinforcing all these stereotypes through the lens of science, which is unfortunate. Well, they, uh, they had a review in Nature that basically highlighted three main areas where her book is sort of off base. And they refer, number one, to her discussion of human sex differences and brain structure and behavior that are characterized by small average differences with a lot of overlap on the individual level. They point out that she characterized it as a more of a massive gulf in, in those differences. Yeah, and on top of that, there was just a lot of misinterpretation and sort mm-hmm. of fudging other study results to conveniently align with this nature-heavy argument. Um, and I feel like this is still the nature versus nurture debate 
is still going on, though. It's not like it was settled with Spelky and with the, you know, this nature, this damning nature review of the female brain. We're still talking about it. It's still posed as a debate. I mean, do you think that, Julie, there's ever going to be a winner declared in terms of nature versus nurture with women in science? Um, no. I mean, not for a long time, because the problem is the more we learn about the brain, more the more data we add to it. And that's good, right? Because over time, we begin to get a more accurate um, idea of how the brain does work, you know, but to try to to try to create a female brain and a male brain is like trying to create two different species. And mm-hmm. so that's where the error in logic is. And I think that we do a huge disservice in, in looking at this black and white you know, like nature or nurture, and not considering the individual. And that's what it really boils down to. Because we know that individually we all differ, and and, and there are certainly different aspects of uh, our makeup that really tend to dominate the way that we act or our interests. And so I think that it's, again, a huge disservice. I think about men in this instance, too. I feel badly for men because what happens is the flip side is that men are not able to say, that they feel vulnerable or dwell in what we would call the world of female emotions. Well, men are just as sad in, you know, feeling vulnerable or experiencing shame as women are. And I think about my dad and my brother and the way that they can't express themselves. So I think that, you know, we to, to try to divvy up the world in these ways and tell people that, you know, you should be. Uh, you know, getting into these various fields for yourself because they fit your gender mm-hmm. is a ridiculous statement. Like, can you imagine your mom or dad saying, you are a, you know, you're, because you're this gender, you should really think about, you know, podcasting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. Well, no, I mean, you know, you mentioned Spelke going back over 20 years of research mm-hmm. and I have gone back over zero re- years of research other than my own existence. And I I was thinking about my own interests and how, I mean, I was interested in science and I always have been. It's just, that's not the field that I necessarily pursued. And I'm wondering, you know, okay, A, I was better at, you know, language arts and stuff like that. So I went into a writing career, but I'm just wondering if more women had been present in my life telling me about science, explaining science. I mean, I had a couple of of female math and science teachers growing up, but it, I don't know. I I just wonder if we need more people like that to help our daughters realize that, yes, you can still be interested in the pink avalanche that's coming at you. Right. But you can also build castles, build blocks, be interested in plants and bugs. Yeah, and when we move the conversation from more of, uh, you know, debating about the brain and ability into looking at the data that we have in terms of the number of girls in classrooms who are interested in science, who are pursuing science, um, then, yeah, that visibility factor absolutely comes up a lot. And we're going to talk about where we are today with women in science by the numbers uh, when we come right back from a quick break. And now, back to the podcast. So when we left off, we were going to talk about women in science. How many women are studying and pursuing STEM fields today? And there are a lot of us in psychology. (laughs) There's that. Well, I mean, but yeah, doesn't that seem like it makes sense? It aligns with our expectations. 
because it may be scientific, but it's also in the in the feelings pool. Well, and we see a lot of uh, women as therapists, as psychologists. I'm thinking of Dr. Melfi on The Sopranos, for instance. <laughs> um, I took a psychology class in college. I even considered minoring in it. Um, so, yeah, I think it very much aligns with our ideas. But w- when we move into things like math, the physical sciences, engineering, the numbers just start eroding very quickly. It's true. Um, but I keep thinking about this article called The End of Men. And I think it was Hannah Rosen mm-hmm. who wrote it. And she was saying that people who are pursuing uh, their master's and their Ph.D., they tend to, you know, women are dominating so I wonder at some point in 50 years, because the amount of women pursuing higher education, uh, if maybe that'll, you know, mess with the stats a little bit. But of course, you know, currently this, this is sort of the picture that we have. It's the picture of ourselves that we're fine with psychology, but we're not necessarily being moved into science and math yeah. and engineering. I mean, it seems like the, the ranks are obviously swelling in terms of women uh, pursuing higher education, but a lot of times the pipeline is directed more toward the, and I hate to use this term, but the pink collar fields, things mm-hmm. like nursing, where especially because of like the aging ba- baby boomers, it's a highly like growth kind of industry to get into. Um, but still, if you look at physics, for instance, only one-fifth of the PhDs in the U.S., which, first of all, just the thought of pursuing a physics PhD makes my mind explode a little bit, but only a fifth of them are being awarded to women. And, even more tellingly, only half of the the PhDs going to, physics PhDs going to women in the U.S. are going to American women. So it's a lot of international students also who will come into the U- United States. Yeah, and if you're looking at physics in particular, the New York Times pointed out that gender differences in enrollment rates in high school physics classes tend to be correlated with the number of women in the larger community who do or do not work in STEM fields, which is kind of what we were talking about earlier, about having representation and role models. Yeah, right. If your mom is a scientist, then you probably are going to be more amenable to that idea of having that career for yourself. I mean... Marie Curie is a perfect example of this. Her daughter went on to win a Nobel Prize as well. Um, so, you know, it's what you're exposed to, I think. I know I keep saying that society keeps dictating what we should and shouldn't do, and it seems kind of ridiculous to say that because you want to feel like you're in control of your life and say no. Um, I know what society's throwing at me, but so much of this is unconscious, and that's where that unconscious bias comes in in the sciences and the way we regard ourselves and the way that others regard us as women. And if you doubt the power of culture over the individual, I just wanted to point out that um, there was this really interesting study by Hujun Kim at the University of California, and he wanted to know how South Korean men dealt with uh, feelings of isolation and sort of reaching out to one another, particularly men who have this G variant when it comes to uh, having receptors for oxytocin, oxytocin being the social bonding drug uh, that our body produces. And so in theory, these South Korean men should have been the ones who would reach out the most. But because in South Korean culture, it is looked uh, down upon to actually try to go to another friend for solace, no matter what your gender is, those men were actually more likely to never reach out. So the the point of that is, is that here you have, again, society dictating behavior and thought as opposed to biology, 
which should have for these guys uh, made them like just huge like hug junkies. <laughs> yeah, as I was reading up for this episode, I was reflecting on my own life in from second through eighth grade, I was homeschooled. And I mean, obviously, I had interaction with other kids and I watched TV and all of that. And so I knew about nerd stereotypes. But nevertheless, in more relative social isolation, I was kind of a math and science nerd. I still wanted always to be a writer, but I always was really good at math and science as well. But once I got to high school and was just slapped in the face by all of the importance of your image and how it comes across, my interest, or at least the interest that I openly expressed toward math and science diminished. And I remember in senior year, I had the option to take AP biology and I just didn't want to because I didn't want to be one of those nerds. And I, I, it's heartbreaking to think now, like myself now, I would totally take, you know, AP biology and tell myself to do that. Yeah. But I really, I, I feel like it was totally an issue of that socialization factor. And I'm just one example well, I mean, I'll go back to that magical reality versus the magic of reality. So, you know, at some point, again, that, you know, girls have these books that they're exposed to about, um, you know, magical castles and getting married and these, that's sort of the terrain of girls' spells. Again, these belief systems into magic and the occult all sort of line up with women, you know, for the most part being stripped of this ability to really access that magic of reality. Mm-hmm. And I wonder, though, too, how much of this is more of a Western issue? Because there was um, one stat that was tossed out um, in a New York Times magazine piece about how um, from 1974 to 2008, the U.S. sent just three girls to the International Mathematical Olympiad. But by comparison, Bulgaria, for instance, from 1959 to 2008, had sent 21. And a lot of times, like with that uh, physics PhD statistic, where half of the women in the United States who are receiving these PhDs are from other countries. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I definitely think you could argue that partially it is it is cultural because if you look at like Eastern European countries, for instance, like they they have a history of wanting to train their women in more technical and mathematical fields. And so it is more common to see, you know, women from that region in in programming, in mathematics and science and all of this stuff. Whereas in in America, I don't know, are we are we we're not as actively trying to push girls and women into those fields? No, not at all. Um, I mean, the STEM initiative is really huge in the United States right now because they, you know, a lot of educators realize that there's a huge brain drain uh, in that field or in those fields just for the country as a whole. So you see a lot of people paying attention to it now, but that's because there's, you know, we're we're not ranking as high as we used to um, at all. It's actually pretty. Dire, and we're more exporters, really, of entertainment. If you look at what the United States is known for now, we're we're not, you know, in the space race like we were in the sixties and seventies, and really driving um, 
innovation when it comes to science, math, and engineering. Yeah, and and girls are going to be such uh, a big part of filling that pipeline because I think it might have been Meg Urey, the astrophysicist, um, who was making this point, but she was someone was saying how the the problem with STEM being so stereotypically focused on boys is that, and, and this is nothing against men or boys' capabilities. But it's like, if that's the only pool we have to choose from, you're going to have to start going to the bottom of the barrel rather than tapping more into the female talent that you have as well. So mm-hmm. that you're going to have more top tier applicants to choose from. But when it comes to encouragement, it's almost as though women need just so much to, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Well, there's, again, there's all that unconscious bias going on. All the, these things that we've absorbed over the years. I'm sure you guys are familiar with the, um, I hate math Barbie. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. So, you know, if you pull the little cord on the back when she says, I hate math. Now, you know, they have since Mattel has put out other types of Barbies that have like better representations of glasses. Maybe Barbie's most intimate thoughts. Yes, glasses. <laughs> Um, but you know, that still sticks with us. It's very hard to shed those mm-hmm. ideas. And I was thinking about the New York Times article, uh, that you guys had sent me in it's by Eileen Pollock, who was really sort of looking at this idea for herself because she was one of, uh, the first two women physics majors who graduated from Yale University in 1978. And so this, this article is an exploration of why she didn't pursue that herself. Um, which in it, she talks about how priming is really important. And there's a 1999 study of the University of Michigan students who had uh, students with the same abilities and the same level of performance, men and women, and they were splintered into two groups. The first was told that men perform better than women on math tests. The second was told that no matter what Barbie might have said, uh, there was no difference in the abilities among the two genders. Now, both were then given a math test. And in the first group, men outscored women by 20 points, in the second by only two points. That is one... I mean, to me, that's amazing, because that's one instance of priming one math test, a 20-point difference right there. And that's not even saying, like, well, what if you had done that, you know five years before those students reached that age and you had started doing that priming then, mm-hmm. what then would their test results look like five years later? Yeah, it would be incredible to see what would happen if we eliminated that, uh, I think it's usually called the stereotype threat, take that out of the classroom mm-hmm. and see what would happen. It would be incredible because you would also probably have some of the cross-pollination of more girls going to science and maybe more boys heading over into things like language arts and Everyone could then flourish in this wonderful garden of learning. That's, oh my goodness! <laughs> that sounds amazing. But but one thing though that astrophysicist Meg Yuri did say in that New York Times Magazine piece was that women need more positive reinforcement and men need more negative reinforcement. Oh yeah, which is funny yeah. because and this was something that came up in uh, one of our episodes on Cheryl uh, Sandberg's book Lean In. How in the business setting. A lot of times, if something goes wrong, a woman will assume that it's her fault, whereas men tend to look externally for the blame, which is which is kind of interesting. And it, it, that's what it reminded me of, of these women in the science classroom, just assuming that they're not going to be good enough. Yeah, I uh, my middle school actually had single gender uh, math classes to try to combat the, uh, I guess, you know, just to try to get more women interested in, in math to, to help us 
flourish and not feel like we had to keep our hands down. I, you know, talk about priming, like as an outside force, like I think I primed myself to not do well, though, because I never like I just never got math and it never clicked with me the way that writing and even science did. And so, like, I I think I kind of set myself back because from the moment I realized that I wasn't good at it and I didn't have the same confidence with it that I did in other subjects, I was kind of like, well, I'm just going to be a bad math student. So, yeah, I mean, I just kind of accepted and internalized that. And the single gender math classes did not did not really help me. But even for the girls who are able to bypass the stereotype threat, who have incredible math talent and science brains, um, because there is a, you know, a particular skill set and talent there, even for the girls who go on to college, there's still a big problem in terms of the biases against women, even at the highest levels of science academia, there are, you know, it, it's it's a tougher road for women. Yeah, and there's, you know, there's starting to be some emerging data about this discrimination that you can really get your your uh, you know eyes around some data on that. But there's also a ton of anecdotal information coming out. I was just reading something about um, Dr. I think Daniel Lee is her name, and she has something called the Urban Scientist. It's a blog that's on Scientific American, and she was offered a guest blogging gig at I think it was Biology Online. You know of this? Yeah, I heard about this. Okay, so the editor said, "Hey, you know, there's. Would you like to join us?" And well, it's an unpaid, you know, blogging gig for her. So she replied back very nicely, "Thanks, but not interested." And so he wrote back. Is it because of the pay? Are you the urban scientist or the urban whore? Oh. All right. So, you know, guys, again, this is anecdotal, but this is a, this is what kind of gives you an idea of how someone decided to take not only her livelihood, but her gender and just undercut all of that and accuse her of prostitution. You know, of course, he probably thought it was a great joke. I, I bet he was in love with that because he was like, urban scientist. Urban whore. I mean, money, he was like, women, prostitution. I'm, yeah, I'm going to convince her yet, right? Well, and it's a similar thing that happened when not too long ago, uh, the woman whose name is escaping me right now, who runs um, I effing love science. Uh, it, it started out as just a Facebook page, and when she, you know, came out and said, "Oh yeah, I'm the person who does it," there was this whole fallout of an, a paper trail of Facebook comments of outraged men saying, no, who felt like they had been duped into enjoying all of this scientific content that a woman was sharing. Which is, I mean, that blows my effing, speaking of effing, mind. Because, I mean, okay, just like talking about this one instance specifically, what has that taken away from you? Like, you were still reading scientific content that you enjoyed and, and talking about it with your peers um, what, what difference does it make that it's presented by a woman? Well, you know, it's just, that's the internet. It is a portal into the underbelly <laughs> of, of humanity. And I, I can even recall another situation where this is actually a brilliant UN campaign, um, that, for women that they took this Google search results of these phrases like women shouldn't or women need to. And then they took the top results and then they showed that as what maybe is on the minds of some men and perhaps even women, too. And and the results were just astounding. It was like women shouldn't be able to vote. Women shouldn't work. Women should know their place. What? 
Yeah, these are the thoughts that are actually going on and 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 under the surface. Well, and that's the thing when we when we look into academia with all these brilliant people um, and looking at these unconscious or sometimes maybe conscious biases. It isn't just men. It is also women who mm-hmm. are discriminating against other women. This was highlighted in a 2012 Yale study, which found that physicists, chemists, and biologists were more likely to view an, a, a male applicant more favorably than a female applicant if they had the same qualifications. They wanted to hire the guy, and they were prepared to pay the woman four thousand dollars less. Yeah, so that's—I mean—that is a real life, real world example of how a lot of women scientists are getting the shaft. Yeah, yeah, because this—I believe they called it the Jennifer versus John, because that's really—I mean—they had identical resumes sent to one hundred twenty-seven participants. So I don't even think they knew that they were participants, by yeah. the way. Um, and identical resumes. One said John. One said Jennifer. And they also were sort of okay candidates. They weren't great, um, but they could fulfill this job of, I believe, the, the position was lab manager. And so uh, Jennifer scored, just so you know, higher unlikability mm. than John did. So she did, you know, trump him in that category. But I think, to, you know, that is like a huge what? Yeah, it, it's astounding. And also just astounding to think that, you know, Women also are exercising a similar unconscious bias. So, so what, what are we to do? This is kicking off the Women in STEM series. So we're going to talk about this more specifically in the areas of tech, engineering, and math. But looking at this more broadly, is there a way to encourage more girls to be brave about their scientific interests or, you know, stoke those kinds of, you know, curiosities? that can help fill this pipeline. Well, I know uh, personally being like a non-scientific person, um, I had great, great teachers all through, all through school, elementary through high school, who it didn't matter if you were a girl or a boy or what your inherent abilities were coming into their classroom. You know, I, I just found it amazing to have great teachers who were um, encouraging me, and some of them were women. Which, I mean, can't hurt, right? Yeah, I think about this and I think, you know, on some level it requires everybody to be like a Zen Buddhist master of their thoughts. Mm -hmm. You know, because an educator, if they're talking to a male or a female, you know, they have to ask themselves, are they communicating with this person in a different way? Are they perceiving this person in a different way? Because this is what we saw in this article um, by Pollock over and over again. There's a lot of misperceptions. So, you know, there was a, a 1997 European study that said that women had to be two and a half, almost two and a half times more productive than their male colleagues to secure financial support. Okay. Because it was sort of that, hey, look at me, look at me. It's the misperception of the person in the classroom that because of this gender bias and this unconscious bias that you might be regarding that individual differently than than how they're actually expressing themselves, which is chilling Mm because we all go around thinking, I think that person gets me. I think that person gets what I just said. But in fact, it requires a female to be more proactive about what she is saying and more aware of how she's being perceived. Right. I think that perception is key. I mean, we've talked about that a lot, that. A woman and a man can say the same thing, but they will not be perceived the same way for having said it. 
Yeah, and there's also uh, body language also ties into this. You sent us, Julie, a, a TED Talk by psychologist Amy Cuddy on how power poses, as she calls them, of, of stretching your arms out and just standing and like taking up a lot of space. Because uh, she was talking about how in, I think it was MBA classes specifically, mm-hmm how men are uh, much more apt to throw their hands up and be much more active and participate a lot more, whereas women do tend to draw into themselves. I personally have a terrible habit of crossing my arms too much, and it makes me look drawn in. But she talked about how her research has found that changing your body language, making it more powerful, can actually have those behavioral changes that can help women out in the classroom to succeed more, too. Yeah, she was, you were really curious about why there was a gender gap in that performance, and that's what she found with those MBA um, graduates, uh, and she wanted to sort of game that a little bit. So she found out that effective leader, leaders have a classic hormone profile. It's high levels of testosterone, you know, that sort of confidence, right, and low levels of cortisol, which is the stress-associated Hormones. So what she found is that when people took these expansive poses, like you see men doing, right? Think of the classroom right now. Is there a guy like sitting back, you know, with his shoulders kind of back? Uh, but just being in those poses for two minutes will give you that optimal cocktail for your body to have you feel more confident. And the really cool thing about this is that she took a bunch of participants. She had them assume these low power poses and these high power poses. And then they had to give a talk, right? Which is awful when you have to give a talk. We all know this, right? Even if this is what you do for, uh, you know, your livelihood, it still takes a lot of energy to get up there and sort of bare your soul in front of a bunch of strangers. So she had these people do this, and lo and behold, the people who had been in those high, expensive power poses, they performed a lot better as um, dictated by people, a third party who actually watched all of these videotapes of these participants performing so they didn't have any bias about what was going on here with this study. And on top of not just educating girls and women on how to conduct themselves, empower themselves, and sort of plow forward through these kinds of unconscious biases that might be at work, I do think it's so crucial for there to be more visibility of women in science. And I think, I mean, Julie, I think it's fantastic that there is, that you are a female voice talking about science. And that's great. I think that, you know, I think in a way that you are maybe unconsciously mentoring young female scientists out there, because it's not common to hear women talking about science. Well, I, th- I was thinking about this, and I was thinking about um, maps of the world, which I know sounds weird, but if you look at maps of the world that are produced by, say, the United States, you're going to see this map of the United States, like, central, and everything else just is to the sides of it, right? So North America is central. But if you look at a map that's produced by Australia, uh, you'll see, you know, that that is Asia. Asia and it's Australia that are central on that map. And that's always a surprise for people who live outside of North America. When you're like, what do you mean? There's other maps that don't have us at the center of of this planet. And so I was thinking about science in the same way. I mean, when you think about STEM um, and you look at that, if there's a map of that, then you see men as like the huge landmass and women at the margins. And I think it's just a matter of awareness because I cannot tell you how many times, and I'm really conscious of this, I come upon female name after female name after female name when I'm doing research, and I look at the studies. 
And they are there. They are there in those fields. They're just not as, as uh, high profile. You know, we when we think about science, actually, if you do, this is a, a nice little challenge for everybody listening. If you go into Google right now and you type in most influential women in science today, I can tell you your page one results will be like 50s, most historical women in science, most influential women ever historically. Like it's all about what has happened in the past. And, and the, um, the sad thing about that is that we're not even really that familiar with those historical figures in STEM, let alone the figures that, that are prominent now. Yeah, it's like we're still, we're, we're catching up now to, yes. to the history. And highlighting those names. Um, I mean, even if you think about the story of, you know, Rosalind Franklin, who's often left out, yeah. you hear about with DNA, oh, Watson and Crick. But no, there's also Rosalind Franklin in there. I, I mean, I think a lot of that has to do with just people's inherent, almost mistrust of women, women's voices in, in those fields of just thinking like, well, let, let's hear it from a man. <laughs> you know, I mean, I think... Until people, until it becomes more normal. And how do we get it to be more normal, quote unquote, obviously, in people's minds? And a lot of that is visibility. I hope to one day soon, you know, people won't be surprised that a woman is presenting scientific information on Facebook. Or something yeah. as silly like that. Hopefully it will just be like, oh, yeah, whatever. There's science stuff. <laughs> and the exciting thing is, though, that you have the White House, for instance, sponsoring women in STEM, girls in STEM initiatives. It's a, you know, there are top down things that are happening to really encourage more girls into science, to empower more women who are studying mm-hmm. science. Um, so I think it's a, Better time than ever before to be a woman who's interested in science. I think so. I was thinking about this uh, when I went to the World Science Festival, not this year, but last year, and there was a great panel on exoplanets, this idea that within the next 50 years, we might find an Earth-like planet. So can we think about that? I mean, what? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, that would change our entire concept of, of life and how it works, and we might get more information about our place in the universe. I mean, it's just really groundbreaking stuff. And Two of the three participants on the panel were women, and one was physicist Natalia Battaglia. She's an astrophysicist, and Sarah Seeger, who is a physicist, and um, they were just amazing. And I thought, this is nice to see. This is uh, the, the sort of passion, the sort of rigor that I think many women are doing in these fields is up here on this panel being represented and and we need more of that and more awareness of that. Yeah, because I think a lot of the focus is on the lack of women in STEM, but there are absolutely, as you say, plenty of women and girls who are doing incredible work that need to be highlighted as well. So, so thanks to you, Julie, though, for coming on and enlightening us about thanks. all this. Thanks for having me. It's an honor to be hanging out with you gals. <laughs> this has been fantastic. Very fun. And Julie, do you want to, uh, can you give a shout out to where folks can find Stuff to Blow Your Mind? They can go to stufftoblowyourmind.com. You can find videos, blogs, uh, well, podcasts, episodes, all sorts of stuff there. Um, so now we want to hear from our scientific listeners out there. What do you think about the stuff we just talked about? Are you in science? Are you doing research right now as you listen to us podcast? We want to hear from you. Email us at momstuffatdiscovery.com. And we've got a couple of letters to share with you when we come right back from a quick break. And now, back to our letters. 
So I've got one here from Helen, and its subject line is language choice. So she writes, I'm a big fan of your podcast and look forward to seeing what topics you will be covering each week. I find your subject choices fascinating, and I'm always impressed by your respectful and measured approach to controversial or sensitive subjects. I'm writing because I was shocked to hear the word spastic used to describe an inattentive waiter in your Women and Wine episode. I'm from the UK where this is a very offensive and outdated term to describe a person with with cerebral palsy. I realize that you broadcast in the U.S. and that there are cultural differences surrounding slang, but I felt I had to point out that to a wider audience, hearing this term in your show is quite shocking and doesn't fit well with the image you portray otherwise. So uh, our apologies if we offended yeah. any sensitive ears. We certainly did not know that. And yeah, we we are hypersensitive about our language. So thank you, Helen, for pointing that out to us. Yeah, no, no offense intended. Um, absolutely. But thank you for writing in and bringing it to our attention. Well, I have a letter here from Laura uh, talking about our women and wine episode. She says, I just graduated from the University of California, Davis, with a degree in viticulture and enology, and I absolutely love working in wine production. I'm currently listening to this podcast while working the 2013 Harvest in Burgundy, France. I wanted to share a few words as a woman in wine production. Winemaking is an incredible field if you love science, agriculture, working with your hands, and, of course, fermented beverages. She says, while there are many women involved in all aspects of the wine industry, we are typically underrepresented in the production side because of all the reasons you mentioned. Winemaking requires a lot of physical activity and strength, and, yes, there are, in rare cases, superstitious people who believe our unique vaginal flora will affect the wine. In my experience, the gap between men and women in production is definitely shrinking, and I'm lucky to say that all of the wineries where I've worked have been fairly evenly split between men and women in production. There are still somewhat gendered tasks, however, which can be frustrating. Generally speaking, women are often seen doing more laboratory analyses, fruit sorting during harvest, and cleaning the smaller, more petite tanks, while men are often the ones handling the forklift driving, heavy lifting, and vineyard management. Of course, these are generalizations. All is fair in love and winemaking, and when you're working 16-hour days during harvest, you'll do whatever task needs to be done. So thank you, Laura, for your two cents. I am so impressed that you had time to write this this lovely email during this uh, winemaking harvest festival. Hey, and she counts as a woman in STEM. Huh. Indeed. Viticulture. Viticulture. What, what? Well, thanks to everyone who's written in. MomStuffAtDiscovery.com is where you can send your letters. You can also follow us on Twitter at MomStuffPodcast and find us on Facebook. And don't forget, you can follow us on Instagram at StuffMomNeverToldYou. And if you haven't done so already, you need to head over and check out our YouTube channels with more than 100 fantastic videos to choose from. It's YouTube.com slash StuffMomNeverToldYou. And don't forget to subscribe. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 